All right. Well, welcome everyone. It's so good to see all of you this morning. And uh, this is our third Sunday in Advent. And as we've been going through an Advent series, we have been looking at the various themes of Advent and how the coming of Christmas um, can help bring some of these things into our life. And so uh, we spoke about hope and we spoke about peace. And today we speak uh, about joy, joy coming into our hearts during the holiday season as we, as we celebrate and remember Advent. Advent comes from the Latin word adventus, which means anybody coming so I didn't really expect anybody to know Latin there except for my son here but uh, the coming and so what do we know about the coming well the coming of Christ uh, in a certain respect whenever anybody's on the way that's exciting we can get exciting about someone coming to visit or something coming to fruition in our lives but there's also an aspect of the coming which is about waiting uh, whenever something is on the way, that means like we can anticipate it, we can almost taste it, maybe even begin to experience it, but not in fullness. There's an aspect to our lives that Advent reminds us that is a lot about the waiting. A lot of life is waiting. And waiting can be very, very uncomfortable. So we celebrate Advent because it almost is teaching us how to do this unpleasant thing called waiting. The, the Jews of Jesus' time in the first century, they were, they were um, expectantly waiting for the Messiah to come into their world and to free Israel and restore the kingdom to Israel. And so at Advent, you know, we remember the first coming of Jesus, but Advent is also meant in the Christian tradition to point us ahead towards the second coming of Christ. And so we live in the in-between, not the upside down, the in-between. Uh, and that is the in-between, the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And theologians, uh, maybe you've heard, have talked about the already but not yet aspect of the kingdom. The already but not yet. The kingdom in one respect is already here. Right? What did Jesus say when he came and he started his ministry? He said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Uh, Jesus went about demonstrating the works of the kingdom. He healed people. He set people free. He preached the good news to the poor. Right? Jesus was the king. So with the coming of Jesus, there is a very real sense in which the kingdom of God has definitively come into our world. It has arrived. It's here. But when we look around and we see all the pain in the world and we see all the suffering, then we can very clearly say, well, it's here, but there's some part of it that is still not here. We're still waiting for the, the fullness of the kingdom to come. And so Advent is about, I guess, training ourselves again to look forward to anticip uh, in eager anticipation for the, for the coming of God, the second coming, when this kingdom, which is already here in one sense, but not fully yet here, will come in fullness. And all that is to say, the in-between can be very uncomfortable. And the reality of the in-between means that no matter the best moments you've had in your life, the most rewarding experiences are twinged with a little bit of grief, a little bit of sadness, even in your best times. Um, the, a couple weeks ago, I, I took my sons to their first ever NBA basketball game, and it was terrific. It was so much fun. We, we went to see the Nets uh, at Barclays Center in Brooklyn. The Nets, unfortunately, got their butts kicked, but I, my sons were happy about that. I was not. They lost to the 76ers. It was a great game. But in, right in the middle of it, my, son, uh, my middle son looked over, and he said something so interesting to me. I thought it was really profound. He said, Dad, I wish this game would slow down. It's going too fast. I just want it to last forever. I thought, wow, it's so beautiful. You know, he was having such a good time that he wanted time to slow so we could just be in, that, be in that space forever. 
And I think what he pointed out there is something that is true of a lot of life. Is we experience great things, but great things come to an end. And we experience wonderful things like marriage, but marriage can sometimes be twinged with grief and with difficulty and with sadness. And we might have the, 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 the dream of our jobs, but it's not perfect, right? And nothing is perfect. And some of us are waiting, and we've been waiting a long time for God to come through and for prayers to answer. And we can be miserable in that waiting, but we don't have to be. And that's what Mary is going to show us, what the Scripture is going to show us, I believe through Mary's song, is that there can be joy in the waiting. That waiting does not have to be a miserable, depressed time, but it can be part of God's way of blessing us. And I know that sounds strange, but we're going to look at this passage today, and I want to show you how this comes to us. So take a look at Luke chapter 1. This historically has been called the Magnificat. It's the song of Mary in joyful response to what God has been doing in her life. It's page 856 in your Bible. You can follow ahead on the screen. I ask that you keep your scriptures open because we're going to be referring back to these verses and, and go through each one of them. But let me just start at the beginning. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Let me just pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come before your word this morning, would you open our hearts by the power of your spirit to help us to have understanding. And I pray that even now, uh, today, that this would be a, a day where we grab a hold of this joy that you are giving to us. And that even though there, there is discomfort and frustration and, and, and intense grief in the waiting, may we be able to experience your love and your joy even in the midst of the waiting. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing that we can say about Mary's joy is that Mary's joy is a response to the gift of God. Joy comes to us by way of gift. If we look, uh, take a look at verse 46 to 47, uh, and Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. This is written in the classic style of Hebrew poetry using the couplet. So any of you who, who have studied the scripture before, you know that a couplet, usually it says the same thing, but in two different lines. And the second line is meant to, meant to kind of um, to fill out the understanding of what was said in the first line. So she says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and then she says, And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So my soul and my spirit, she talks about. And that's just another way that Mary is saying, my whole being, everything that I am, is just responding to, to God in, in spontaneous joy. And so the very first thing that I think that we can say about here is that, that joy is not something that we need to try to conjure up within ourselves, but joy is a response to the gift of God. Part of God's gift to you and to me is this joy that he wants to give us. There are scripture passages which teach us, like in Philippians, it says, be joyful always. I don't know if you knew, but joy is actually, we're commanded to be joyful. 
But here, joy is not something that, that, that Mary is doing because she's commanded to do it, but rather it is a natural overflow response to what God is doing in her life. And so first thing that you can think about this holiday season is that if you, if you feel like there's a part of you that is hungering for joy and, and needs joy, reflect on God's gift to you. Reflect on what he's done through Christ and you'll begin to find that the joy of God, which is a gift that we can all receive, will begin to bubble up uh, in your heart and in your soul. You'll be able to experience it. It is a response to what, it, what God has done. We'll keep looking. Verse 48. So what specifically has God done for Mary? It's in verse uh, 48, it says, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. From, for behold, from now on, uh, all generations will call me blessed. You know, we, of course, all know that Mary would end up becoming the mother of Jesus. But I think what we don't reflect on is to stop and think, who was Mary before all of this stuff happened? We do know a little bit from the scriptures about Mary's background. But we're told that, um, that what, uh, first of all, she was a virgin who was a betrothed. So she was of marriageable age. So uh, the commentaries suggest that, that Mary was just a teenager. She is very, very young. This was common in the time. So we, we would be very reasonable to guess that, that she was a girl of about 15 years old. We know that Mary was from Nazareth. And the scripture teaches us that other people even say that Nazareth was a backwater town that really nobody expected anything positive to come out of Nazareth. Nathaniel, when he heard that Jesus was from Nazareth, he said, Is it Nazareth? Really, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So think about whatever town in your imagination like has no significance, is barely on the map, and nothing noteworthy ever happens in that town. That's Nazareth. That, that's where Mary comes from. We know also, of course, that she's Jewish. The, she's an ethnic minority in the, in the Roman Empire. The Jews were oppressed by the Romans. The, the, the Jews were in an occupied territory that belonged to Rome. And we also know that Mary, of course, was a girl. She's a female. And so, friends, who is Mary before all this happens? Mary was somebody that nobody would ever have noticed. Mary was a person whom nobody would ever expect would make any kind of difference in the world. Right? In this, and I'm not saying this to be mean. I'm just, I'm just talking about kind of how, where she stood in the grand scheme of things in the first century. She is a person who's absolutely not um, noteworthy. Uh, she, she's, she, she's not noteworthy for, for any reason. And yet, in this psalm, she marvels that her, being this nobody, being this young girl from the middle of nowhere, no significance, and yet somehow she has found the favor of God Almighty is going to come to her and, and is going to use her for an absolutely mind-blowing, incredible purpose. It, it is, uh, it's just astonishing. And so to her, you know, she says, nobody knew me. Nobody cared about me. I had no prospects in the world. I wasn't going to be influential. And yet, now all generations are going to call me blessed because God has noticed me. Friends, I wonder how many of you here today maybe feel like Mary sometimes. Maybe you feel like life has passed you by. Or you feel like no one has noticed you. Or you worry, you know, am I going to amount to anything? Is my life going to have any significance in the world? God's message to you is, I see you. I see you. I notice you. You think the world doesn't appreciate you. You think the world does not notice you. I notice you. And I have a plan for your life. And I'm going to use you in a powerful way. That is part of this joy. 
right? That, that we can be in this play, the in-between, and not sure about how things are going to work out, and yet God affirms. I, I see even the smallest, what the world would consider the most insignificant person. I see you. I'm with you. And I have a plan for your life. I love you, and I care about you. But, but, that doesn't mean it's going to be easy, and there is a whole lot of waiting that you're still going to have to go through. It's going to require patience. It's not going to be easy. What is Mary going to have to wait for? Well, she's, she's pregnant. She's going to have to wait at least, you know, eight or nine months for this baby to come. Once the baby's born, she's going to have to wait a th- another 30 years for that baby to become a man and to begin his public ministry. Once Jesus sets out to begin his ministry, she's going to have to await a whole other nail-biting, anxiety-inducing three years of seeing her son, you know, begin his public ministry, become kind of a local legend. She's going to have to wait when Jesus has been crucified and is in the tomb for three days. She's going to have to wait and wait and wait. And yet, even in the waiting, Mary has this incredible overflow of joy. There is joy for Mary even in the waiting. And I wonder how many of you today, this morning, you're waiting. What are you waiting for? Maybe there's some of you who you're waiting for your job and you've put in application. I know a couple people are in that situation. You've applied and you've applied and you've applied and you've had so many conversations and sent in so many resumes and you're waiting. You're just waiting for God to come through and for you to find that, to, to land that job that's going to work for you and for your family. Or maybe you're a young person and you're like, you know, I, I can't wait to leave. I want to I be my own person. I want to be an adult. I want to go to college. I want to start my own life. Maybe you're waiting to meet that right person and and you're just, you're hoping, you're holding on to hope, but you've been discouraged and you've had a bunch of false starts and things haven't panned out and you're wondering what's going to happen. You're waiting. And maybe there are some of you here today who you you are married, but you're waiting for, for a baby and you've tried and things aren't working and you're waiting and waiting and wondering, are you going to be able to have a child? But you're waiting. A lot of life is waiting. It's waiting. But friends, and this is maybe, you know, make note of this, because I think of all the things I'm going to say this morning, this is one of the most important things that I want to tell you, that we don't have to be miserable in the waiting. We are living in the already but not yet, the in-between. We've experienced, we've seen God doing good things in this life and world for us. He's made promises. He's going to fulfill those promises. He sees us. Mary shows us there can be joy in the anticipation of what God is going to finally do and what we can know that he's going to do in and through Christ. Understand this. Joy is not primarily about getting what you're waiting for. Joy is instead about looking to our great God and what he has done for you, his incredible love for you. Everything with you have experienced is partial, but there's more to come, and God is not forgotten about you. He's going to fulfill his promises. He's going to bring it to fruition. So Mary shows us there can be joy even in the waiting. He has his eye on us. Point number two, there's joy in the gift, but now there's joy in the flip. I wonder, uh, you're wondering, what exactly am I talking about? Joy in the flip. So let's continue to, 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 to look at Mary's song, this joyful song of Thanksgiving, and we'll see that there's another dimension to her joy. So God has noticed her. God has done this incredible thing for her, but now she takes a step back. And as Mary uh, is praising God, she reflects on the fact that whatever this, this person is that, that is in her womb, 
this king that is going to be born is going to bring a kingdom into this world that is going to absolutely flip everything upside down. So take a look with me at verse 51 and through 53. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Jesus would very famously capture the same, um, the same idea about what he had come to do when he said the first shall be last and the last shall be first. The kingdom of God in Luke is this upside down reality where it takes those who are on the margins and it takes those who are disregarded by society and it brings them into the very center of God's purposes while at the same time those who are haughty and those who are proud and the oppressors, right, they will be brought back down to their proper perspective. Mary zooms out in her song as she's, and she reflects not only on God's kindness to her individually, but she reflects on God's kindness to his people, the people of Israel. And Mary begins to reminisce and think back about all the times that God has done this, this very thing. Right? Think about Abraham. We go all the way back to Abraham. He was one man. He was elderly. He had no kids. And yet God chose this person who was, who was elderly and who was insignificant and said, Abraham, I'm going to take you and out of you and out of your seed, I'm going to create a whole nation and I'm going to bless you and I'm going I'm to give you the land. So God takes what is insignificant in the world and he flips it. And he gives that person, he gives his people a place of prominence in his plan. He does it again in the Exodus. The people of God have been enslaved in captivity in Egypt, but God goes in and rescues his weak and vulnerable people, brings them out, rescues them, brings them to, to the land of Israel and establishes them. So he did it there. Uh, we know, of course, that the Israelites went into exile because of disobedience and they were scattered throughout the Assyrian and the Babylonian empires. They were made weak, they were enslaved, and yet, yet God, throughout history, he's bringing his chosen people back to Israel and he's restoring them and redeeming them. And so Mary knows and she sees that this is what God does. He flips things upside down, which means very practically that things are not what they, what they, uh, what they seem like. They are not as they appear. The kingdom of God means that you can look at the worst, hopeless, a most hopeless situation in your life and have confidence that God can take what the world thinks looks weak and ridiculous and he can transform it for amazing purposes for his good and for our good. This is Mary's perspective, the upside-down kingdom, the faithfulness of God in, in, in taking what looks in the world, what looks like from a world's perspective to be weak and, and, and marginal and yet to take out of that situation uh, and make it into something incredible and wonderful. This is what God does. Christian joy is joy in knowing that nothing is as it seems. And I want you this morning to think about whatever situation in your life that you might be facing that you think is hopeless, that you think is pathetic, a situation that you think this is completely beyond redemption. Friends, the good news of Advent is that what it looks like to the world is not what it looks like to God in God's eyes and that therefore we can approach these situations in our lives with a radically different way of thinking. Not the world's way of thinking, but God's way of thinking. Uh, in our world, you know, you, you've heard us talk about, um, me and Pastor Aaron have talked about, you know, the, this phenomenon that we're seeing, the, the great dechurching of America. Uh, and the book was written about this recently, but basically the authors charted how 
uh, Christianity has been shrinking and those who are involved in the church has been on the decline. Right? We, I think we all kind of knew that, but what the, what the book pointed out is that in the last 20 to 30 years or so, there's been a massive, unprecedented acceleration in the number of people who are leaving church. So less people are going to church now than ever before, and they're, they're leaving in droves very, very quickly. Uh, and, and we could become, you know, we could become very fearful, I think, uh, as believers and very um, worried about this. Uh, it's very clear that, it, right, and why are they leaving? Well, for different reasons. Uh, part of it is that people's lives have just become very full, and so they're busy, and, and church and God gets crowded out. In some situations, people just aren't going to church because their, their friends don't go, and their, their communities are not really involved. But one of the things that the book points out as well, that a major reason that people are leaving the church is be, simply because the church has massively uh, let down people. And people come to church hoping to hear the gospel preached and to learn about scriptures, and yet in the church they, they encounter judgmentalism and they encounter hypocrisy. And many people have found that the institutional church simply does not reflect what they believe about God to be true, and so therefore they walk away. They don't want to be a part of it. So, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a truth, it's upsetting, but this is what's happening. And, and we live in a culture, and you, you've heard Pastor Aaron say this as well, that is becoming increasingly post-Christian. Um, so what does that mean? Um, Harvey Cox is a professor at Harvard Divinity School. He kind of explains this, this concept of post-Christian. He says, we now live in a post-Christian America. The Judeo-Christian ethic no longer guides our social institutions. The Christian ideals and values no longer dominate social thought and action. The Bible has ceased to be a common base of moral authority for judging whether something is right or wrong, good or bad, acceptable or unacceptable. Now, I actually, my personal perspective is that he overstates the case because when I look around and even, even at my secular friends, um, you know, values like charity and self-sacrifice and love and compassion, listening, right, these are very much Christian values that are, that are steeped in, in the, the Judeo-Christian ethic. And I, I do think that um, our, our world still is, maybe is more Christian than, than people want to let on or are willing to acknowledge. Having said that, you know, it is very clear that that America is not the Christian place that, that it once was. We are post-Christian in the sense that, you know, we can't assume that everybody, you know, believes the gospel, holds the Bible to be true. And uh, certainly, I know that I'm sure many of you have friends that if, you know, they ask you, uh, you know, what are you doing on the weekend? And you say, oh, I went to an NBA game. They'd give you a thumbs up. But if you say, oh, I was sitting in church on Sunday morning at an evangelical church, they might look at you sideways, right? So that's, that's part of being in this, in this post-Christian uh, setting. And we could get very discouraged and we could get very fearful because maybe from the world's perspective, church looks small, Christians look foolish, and they look weak, and it's becoming out of style, right? And so we could get fearful. But the lens of Mary, understanding what, how the kingdom of God flips things, that maybe being on the margins is not the worst thing. And that the church might think, you're small, you're weak, you're insignificant. I'm sorry, the world might think you're small, you're weak, you're insignificant. Right? But God sees things totally different. And God's routine way of working in the world is to take us when we're weak, take us when we feel vulnerable, and, and through our weakness, to, to bring about an incredible, glorious work of God. You know, when I was, um, can I be vulnerable here a second? Yeah? 
You're like, what's he going to say? Okay, when I was living in New York City, you know, we were planting this church um, in New York City. We were there for 16 years. I often felt very small and insignificant in a big place like New York. And if you walk around the city, you, know, you go through Times Square, you go through Wall Street, you go through Midtown, you know, everywhere you go, you see these emblems of power and you see these monuments to influence. Uh, you see these incredible, you know, world-changing institutions and you see powerful, wealthy, successful people. And there is not a day that I would leave my apartment and go to work and just feel so small in the grand scheme of things and feel so insignificant. And, and it was a spiritual battle, right? And, and it's like the enemy was saying, Ben, no one cares what you have to say. No one cares about your gospel. Who do you, who do you think you are? You know, you little guy planting this tiny little church in this big city, you're not going to have any influence, right? But from the world's perspective, and by the way, when people, so, you know, what do you do, Ben? Uh, and I'm like 27, I just moved to New York. Oh, I'm, I'm a pastor. I'm pastoring a city uh, in New York City. They always look at me funny like, why, are you serious? Like, people could barely believe that you would be doing such a foolish thing. So from the world's perspective, this looks crazy. It looks foolish. It doesn't look significant. And you feel the weight of that. And yet, what does this scripture teach us? That things are not what they seem. And yeah, our church was small. Maybe in the world's eyes it was insignificant and we didn't have a lot of money and yet God moved powerfully through that church. And we saw a life change and we saw people baptized and we learned that it doesn't matter how much money you make or how influential you think you are, that people at the end of the day still need Jesus. And they're looking for community and they're looking for belonging and they're looking to be set free from the idols of, of the culture like the, your appearance and your wealth and what people think about you, Right? The gospel had power even in a place like New York. What situation are you in in your life where you feel weak, you feel vulnerable, you feel like this is a mess? The joy of Advent is that God can take those very things where you feel completely at a loss and he can use them for your good and the, and the good of the world as well. Right? What did Paul say? He said, I delight in weakness because when I am weak, then he is strong. He said, God's power is made perfect in my weakness. Because when I'm weak and I know I can't do it on my own, that is when God is going to get all the credit for what he's going to do in my life. Things are not what they seem. The kingdom is flipping things upside down. And finally, we'll look at another aspect of, of Mary's joy, and that is her incredible persp historical perspective about what God has been doing all along. And I'm going to teach you a very important Hebrew word, which is chesed. Uh, look at verse 54. Chapter 1, verse 54 and, uh, 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. As Mary is singing this song of joyful response to God about his goodness to her, um, she recognizes something incredible about God and, and about how he has always worked throughout history, and that is that God never forgets to be merciful to his people. That he is, he is long-suffering, he is faithful, and he, he does not forget to show mercy to his people. Now, this is written in Greek in our Bibles, right? Uh, well, our Bibles is English, translated from the Greek. Mary was speaking in, in Aramaic, but 
I want to teach you a Hebrew word. And that Hebrew word is chesed because when, she, when it says here the mercy of God, I believe that what she was referring to was a Hebrew concept, the chesed of God, which is a word that in Hebrew it is a rich, deep word uh, that has a lot of significance. And it's such a deep word that we barely even know how to translate it in English. But the DBL Hebrew Dictionary defines it this way. The loyal love, unfailing kindness, devotion, i.e. a love or affection that is steadfast based on prior relationship. Mary has joy. She's waiting. She's going to experience hardship, but she has joy because she knows God is a God of chesed. Chesed means the long, uh, long-lasting covenant faithfulness love of God. That God has said, these are my people, and I will never forsake them. I will never back out of my promises to them. My word is good. I stand by it. No promise of God shall ever fail. The scripture teaches us that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. And Mary has this joy because she realizes, I may not see it now. I'm only experiencing the beginnings of it, but I know what's coming. And so I can have joy. All right. I want you all to practice, okay? When you say this word, you really got to like, ha, you got to, almost like you're clearing your throat. So give it a good shot. Everybody say chesed. It's good. That's good. I think my, my Jewish friends would be proud of you. So everybody turn to your neighbor and said, God has chesed for you. Amen. And so Mary's story, this joy that she has in the waiting God notices her. God is faithful to his people. He flips situations upside down. He can flip your situation upside down. And God never, uh, he never backs out of his promises. And so my hope for us is that we can have joy even in the waiting. That's what Advent is about, teaching us again to look forward to anticipation what God has done and what he's going to do in and through Christ. Now, I know a lot of you come from a Catholic background. And in the Catholic Church, they make a very, very big deal about Mary, right? And some of us, I think, in the Protestant tradition, because of that, there's almost a reaction against that. And so we downplay Mary in the, in the Protestant Church. And I, under, I understand why. But just reading this and learning about Mary and what she did, you got to admit there's something pretty incredible about Mary. She's a, little, she's a young girl, she's a right, teenage girl of no significance, no earthly significance, and yet God comes to her with a job, and Mary, in incredible humility and submission, she just says, yes, God, whatever you have in mind to do, I'll cooperate, I'll help, right? She's an incredible person. Imagine what courage. The God of the universe comes to you with that job, she says, yes, you know, a lot of other men in Scripture, they're like, oh, God, no, I, burning bush, no, I've got to get away from here. I don't know if I can handle this. Send somebody else. But Mary, is, she's so courageous. Yes, Lord, what, what do you, whatever you want to do, right, in me, do it. I can be used by you. She's an incredible example for us. And I believe that in the same way that, that Mary laid down her life and said, God, use me, that he's calling all of us to that same posture. Lord, you want to birth something in me? I'm yours. Do, you know, do with me what you'd want to do. God is birthing something in all of us. There's something he wants to do in and through you. 
Nobody escapes his notice. He's looking for people that are humble and who are willing and who will say, God, you want to use me for this? I'm available. Use me. God can birth something incredible in your life. Right? God, he already is birthing Christ in you, not in the same sense of Mary, but the scripture teaches us that, that we are being born again into the likeness of Christ. He really is birthing Christ in us. He's, maybe this waiting, which has been so hard and been so, been so painful, is part of God's plan of, of, uh, of challenging you to trust him more. Maybe he's working on your rough edges. He's helping you to grow. Again, the waiting does not have to be a bad thing. It can be an opportunity to let God do his life-changing work within you, but it requires this open posture, the posture of Mary that says, God, you want to use me? Use me. I'm available. And God can do something incredible in and through you, not just birth Christ in you, but impact people, change the world. And maybe some of you today, you're here, you're a little older. Maybe you're already retired. And so you're like, what's this guy talking about? That guy's not going to birth something new in me. I've already lived past my prime. You know, I'm just, you know, I just want to retire now. But did you know the, retur- the word uh, retire is not in the Bible? So maybe God wants to do something in you that you weren't expecting. Let me tell you a story. There's this guy named Mike. Mike was a very, very successful business person, and he retired, and he was at home, and his wife was like, Mike, you're driving me crazy. You got to get out of here. Find something to do. You can't just be around all day. So Mike was thinking, okay, what am I going to do? And uh, somebody got in touch with Mike, and they were raising some money for kids in Pakistan. And it turns out that, there, that in Pakistan, you know, Christ, the Christianity is a, is a persecuted minority in Pakistan, and that a lot of Christians end up as slaves working, making bricks in these brick kilns. They go into debt. And so the person was raising money and said, Mike, we need money. We're trying to get uh, sweaters and sweatshirts and clothing for these kids that are in the, in the brick kilns because they're slaves there. And then Mike said, well, okay, I mean, I'm, I'm willing to do that, but, you know, they're still going to be slaves, right? So is there something we can do that would go beyond that? What, what if we try to free them from slavery instead? That seemed like it would have a lot more impact. And they said, well, they're in debt. They would have to have their debts paid off. And it turns out that what happens in, in Pakistan is that a lot of these Christians, they go into debt for various reasons, like a medical expense, and they go to the brick kiln owners to, for money, and then they end up in debt, and they can't pay off their debt. And so they have to work at the brick kiln in order to pay off their debt. But it's a cycle of slavery, because what happens is they make so little money working, making bricks at the brick kiln that they can't pay off their debt. So they're just stuck working there, for years and years. And not only that, but if, you have ki- if you're in slavery and you're, you have kids there, then those kids will be, will be slaves as well. And so Mike comes to find out that there's whole generations of these families that have been living as slaves making bricks in these brick kilns. And he's like, that's a terrible thing. Well, what if we pay off their debts? Could we get them out of slavery? How much would that cost? And they said, well, actually not that much. A lot of these people only owe, on average, about $100 but they're so poor, they can't even pay that off. So Mike finds out that if he were to come up with $100 and bring that, he could actually negotiate with the brick kiln owners and pay off the debt and, and walk, help those families to walk away. But of course he realized, well, these people have been in slavery for years and years, so uh, we can't just, you can't just, okay, so you rescue them from slavery, then what? Well, you've got to set them up with a job, right, so that they can provide for themselves so they don't go back into slavery. So what, so what do they do? They set them up with, with uh, businesses. And uh, for a very you know, low cost of money to us, maybe $100 or so, they can get them uh, a car or a cab, and they can begin 
uh, taxing people and make a living that way. Some of them, they help to, to start their own grocery store and they have like a little, um, a little cart and they can go and get groceries and make a living that way. Some of them, they might set up with a little corner market or corner deli or uh, a little store, uh, you know, just a little shop and they can make uh, money that way. You know, it only costs $100 to get these folks set up. So Mike, in his retirement, begins dedicating his life, going over to Pakistan, hiring people over there, raising money to get these people out of slavery, and he has gotten thousands of these Christians out of slavery. But the problem is there's tens of thousands that are still in slavery, and his goal is to free every single last Christian out of these slave camps so that the body of Christ in Pakistan can be redeemed. In his retirement age, you know, God worked in his heart. And Mike's, you know, we've met him a couple times. And some of you probably know him. And uh, you can just all attest, this is a guy filled with joy. He has joy. But Mike has sadness with the joy. And the sadness is because as many people as he frees, there's still thousands and thousands of these poor folks that are living as slaves in these brick kilns. And they're being treated atrociously. Friends, that's the already but not yet. That's the in-between. That's what we're called to. So we can have joy, but it's, I wish I could say it was just joy all the time, but we all know it's just not reality. The kingdom of God is here, but it's still on its way. But maybe as we wait and as we have a posture of submission before God, he can do something in us. He can birth something new in us. It can make a massive difference in this world. And I'm not saying you all need to go to Pakistan and start freeing Christians. It's just one example. But is God, could God be calling you to something, a way of redeeming whatever pain or longing that you carry within you? My hope for us is that during this Advent season that we don't give in to desperation and into sadness and into grief because of what we don't have, but that we appreciate what God has done, what he's promised he's going to do in Christ, that he's with you, he's watching over you, he's with you every second, and he wants to use you for incredible purposes. May that be true of us this holiday season, this Christmas season. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray for your Advent joy to fill our hearts. Lord, would you comfort us in our brokenness, in our longing, and in our waiting. Would you redeem the waiting. Help us to experience your joy and your peace even in the midst of waiting. May we know that joy more and more. May we radiate that joy to our friends, our church, our world. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.